Hey everybody, Dr. Josh Axe here. And on today's podcast, we have one of the people that's really helped pioneer the paleo diet, the keto diet, and so much more. It is Rob Wolf. Rob, welcome to the show. Doc, huge honor to be on the show. Thanks. Well, cool. I know we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We'll talk keto. We'll talk paleo. We're going to talk about uh, the brain. Uh, we're also going to even, you know, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, sort of our health message and really what makes you so unique and what you talk about. And I know I've actually, your wife, I've seen some of her work and that type of thing as well uh, in the whole paleo space. But I'd, I'd love to start off just hearing a little bit about your story. You know, wh why is it like, what's your mission? And because I know you, you have a new podcast out or a podcast. It's awesome. It's called The Healthy Rebellion Radio. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But but really, what got you in the natural health space? What's your mission today? And then let's jump into keto, paleo, and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And I'll try to be succinct. It's a long story at this point. But I've always been interested in health and human performance. I did a biochemistry undergrad. I was kind of debating between medical school, naturopathy school, Chinese medicine. Like, it, it, you know, it, it, I was really, it, or just doing like a PhD deal because I do enjoy research. I was actually doing some bench chemistry research at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center doing some lipid metabolism related uh, work. And it was right around this time I had a really significant health crisis. I developed ulcerative colitis so bad that they wanted to do all manner of surgery on me. And I was the ripe old age of about 26, 27. And I was sufficiently well steeped in medical practices that I knew that that was not a good option. Yeah. And so uh, I was vegan at the time. Uh, we discovered that my mother had um, celiac disease. I had celiac disease. Um, I'm intolerant to most grains, legumes, and dairy. Can have a little bit of, of stuff here and there, but it was the discovery that of, of these kind of food intolerances that got me directed towards the concept of what, what we would now call a paleo type diet. I ended up tracking down Lauren Cordain back in 2000, 2001 and doing a research fellowship with him. Well, can, and, can I say quick too? Oh, yeah. So the way I got turned on to you, Rob, was I read a book called The Paleo Diet for Athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was a fantastic book. So I was a big triathlete, uh, tri triathlete at the time and read the book, was so impressed, started following it and really saw great results. My joints mm -hmm. felt great, gut felt great, but I'll let you go on. I just wanted to say that's when I first had uh, heard, heard your name was reading that book. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And it, uh, so did some work with Lauren and, and right around that time, I was always, you know, poking around in the early interwebs and I found this new workout called CrossFit. And a friend of mine who's a retired Navy SEAL, he and I started doing this stuff in his garage each morning and probably within about three months, we had like 30 people that we were training there. And so we reached out to uh, Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit, and we said, hey, we would like to open a gym and call it CrossFit. And they said, we would love that. And that ended up being the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. And wow. this was up in Seattle. Yeah, and then I moved down to Chico, California, where I did my undergrad. I kind of missed the sun compared to Seattle. And so I opened up what was then uh, CrossFit NorCal, which was the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. So I was just super early in like the kind of paleo CrossFit scene. If you, if you do like a uh, Google Trends analysis of paleo and CrossFit, they grew and it, they lived and died in lockstep with each other. But it wow. was a really interesting opportunity to um, 
work with people from elite athletes, soldiers, SEALs to, you know, the, the area that my heart really resonates, which is more that metabolic syndrome and, and uh, gut and auto, autoimmunity related stuff. Like it's super cool to work with high level athletes, but I kind of feel like I'm more of a speed bump than anything else. I just try to slow them down so they don't kill themselves. And that's not that gratifying. Whereas I felt like, you know, somebody suffering metabolic syndrome or a really severe autoimmune disease, if I could help that person, it might literally save their life. Yes. And so that's really been kind of my, my orienting, I, I guess, North star is, is uh, just trying to let people know that there might be some alternatives for gut and autoimmune related issues in particular that aren't really well steeped within the, the mainstream. And, uh, my first book, The Paleo Solution, was the first time that the term autoimmune paleo diet was, you know, formalized and written down. And then, you know, uh, 10 years after that, we have quite a number of randomized control trials now. And like Terry Walls just got a $2 million research uh, allocation to really dig into the autoimmune paleo diet and different iterations of it. So even though it started off pretty pretty pseudoscientific out there in the weeds, like it's uh, over time, it's really gained a, a ton of traction. And uh, I think you mentioned keto a little bit earlier on. I think keto is going to prove to be a more um, amenable topic for research because it's got this really binary cut point. Are you yep. in or are you out? Whereas paleo is really likable. Is it high carb or is it low carb? Is it high protein or low protein? Like there's, there's all these variations to it. And, and so although research continues to go forward on just kind of the paleo diet concept, I, I think that that kind of low carb and or ketogenic perspective is it, it just lends itself better to academic research. It just just kind of fits within that model better. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and I can totally see that. And we we've seen in a short period of time how many keto studies are coming just out. Exploded, yeah, it, it yeah. is. And so it's um, so I, I I can totally see that. For for the listeners, I'd love for you to share really what are the benefits of the paleo diet? What is it exactly? What are the benefits of keto? And which diet is best for which type of person in your professional opinion? Oh man. Um, <laughs> you, you know, the way I kind of break paleo down is that it's about kind of macronutrient quality and it's, and it's kind of macronutrient agnostic. Maybe it's high carb, maybe it's low carb, maybe it's high protein, maybe it's low protein, but it, it puts on kind of a, a, a perspective of, uh, you know, a view of our kind of ancestry and how recently have different food stuffs entered our our day to day experience. And so we have like this industrialization process, which is only about thirty years old, forty years old of of the really intensified industrial food system. Prior to that, we had this run up of of what we would call you know the agricultural revolution. But then all of human history prior to that was spent as hunter-gatherers. And so within that hunting and gathering story, you had different types of fish and game meat, fruits, vegetables, root shoots and tubers, and some sort of seasonal variation to that. Like sometimes things were really in abundance and sometimes it was kind of a relative scarcity. And so I think that, you know, we can imply some some things from that that are, are probably an optimal diet is largely whole unprocessed foods. There's probably as much variability within that as, as what we can kind of reasonably tolerate. And, and some people 
today have less tolerance than, than maybe what we should, but I'm, I'm at a loss as to how to recover that, like things like oxalate and histamine intolerances. Um, why are those emerging, you know, because of changes in the gut microbiome? Um, but that, that paleo template is the food, but it's also an acknowledgement of community, of photo period exposure. Like I would really, I, I, I really would ring the bell both on the gut microbiome and the, the uh, circadian biology. The interest in the paleo diet really drove interest in those topics too. Those were important topics. They would have emerged eventually, but I really feel like the, the kind of paleo concept put an enormous amount of focus on those. And then I guess the flip side is a ketogenic diet historically has been oriented around an intervention for epileptic seizures specifically. That's when it was originally developed. It was a very high fat, low to moderate protein, very low carbohydrate diet. And it was great in a lot of ways, but it presented some challenges. Children had a tendency of failure to thrive. They didn't get as tall as their peers. They ate a mixed diet. It's pretty difficult to stay on. And over the course of time, there have been a lot of iterations around that, that central theme, like a modified Atkins, which is higher in protein, not quite as restrictive in carbohydrate. It includes more fruits and vegetables. And then some modifications like the MCT ketogenic diet, where you eat a low glycemic low diet, again, ideally largely whole unprocessed foods, but then supplementing with various MCT sources to goost the ketogenic state from that, that substrate of using medium chain triglycerides, which the only fate that they can have is to be processed by the liver and converted into ketone bodies. And so over the course of time, we've found that even in these really um, extreme medical scenarios of like a, a refractory epilepsy, that these modified Atkins type approaches and or the inclusion of MCTs allow for much broader uh, kind of dietary experience, but still provides the same therapeutic benefit. So, it, you know, I've eaten pretty close to a ketogenic diet for about 22 years. That's just where I feel best. Uh, if folks have read my first book, even though it was a paleo prescription, I was recommending 50 or fewer grams of carbohydrate in the beginning of this 30 day reset. So that's always been kind of my home base. And I use that as a reset to then see, are, do you have dairy intolerances? Do you have gluten intolerance? What, what's your carbohydrate uh, tolerance? That was more the topic of my second book, Wired to Eat, where we actually got in and looked at how people respond to different amounts and types of carbohydrate. And what we find is that a lot of people don't do particularly well with <laughs> many carbohydrates. And so they end up in that kind of quasi-ketogenic state as kind of their, their safe space for maintaining blood sugar control and really um, maybe most importantly, maintaining appetite control so that they, you know, spontaneously uh, can moderate their eating in a way that, that they can remain healthy over the long haul. Makes sense. You know, one of the things too, I think that's interesting, you know, and I've worked with a lot of patients in the past and people today with keto and some people respond amazingly well. It's like, you should be on this the rest of your life. Some people though, I think, you know, if you look at the way that some of these researchers at John Hopkins had people do it, it was sort of like, hey, let's try fasting. You can't fast forever. Let's go to keto. But I think for some people, you know, when what I found is doing keto uh, is great for a lot of people, maybe is like you would do a fast or a cleanse. Mm -hmm. You're doing it for a month, a couple times a year. Then the rest of the year, moving into something like paleo or something yep. like 
you, you know, like that. That seems to me to work for you know, a significant amount of people, which is one of the things that I think is so great about your work is you've really covered both keto and then moving into something like paleo in a, in a, in a really powerful way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of a book. It's fairly old now. It came out in 2000, 2001 called Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar, and Survival. And uh, they recommend a ketogenic diet, you know, basically like fall through early spring, kind of emulating like mm. more of a, a carbohydrate scarcity and then they generally recommend try not to go too crazy with refined food, but with you know opening things up and, and having much more latitude the rest of the year. And I, I think some eye towards seasonal eating makes a ton of sense, you know, and and uh, just provides different opportunities for exploring different foods. We tend to potentially reduce the likelihood of developing food intolerances because we're not eating exactly the same thing all the time. And I think metabolically, it kind of makes sense to, to emulate that fasting state at least some part of the year. Yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan. My biggest area of study has been traditional Chinese medicine. And so for me, you know, I mean, seasonal eating is such a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eating based on your internal needs. But as you're saying, there are certain foods they tend to have based on the five elements. But, you know, in the winter months, uh, you know, you're eating foods that are very umami, things like horseradish, things that cause your body to move because you're not moving much, much itself, you know, or right. you're not moving as much spring. It's let's get that liver clear, you know, cleansed and cleared. And so anyways, I love, uh, I love that train of thought, you know, seasonal eating is something, it never seems to be like a real popular topic, but it probably is one of the most important things we could all ever follow. Right. Um, you know, which, which, which I know, I know you're in alignment with. So, all right, let's talk about a few other things. So I want to talk about supplements for a minute. What do you personally use? What do you personally recommend? And are there any specific recommendations for supplements that are unique to somebody who is on keto? Oh, man. Um, I don't do a ton. Like uh, this time of year when we're in the winter, I'll do a vitamin D and K combo drop. And I, yep. I all, myself, the kids, the wife, the cat, the dog, like everybody, everybody's on that. Um Beyond that, and, and getting to specifically to your question, um, and this is, a, this is a funny thing. So I'm a biochemist by training. I'm reasonably good at it, like I taught medical students biochemistry. And so you would think I'm reasonably good at this stuff, but uh, for years, while I was trying to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu while keto-fueled, I had a lot of problems. Like I just didn't have a low gear it, it, it felt like I needed more carbohydrate to make things work. And so I started working with a, a couple of people who've become very good friends and, and business partners, uh, Luis Villasenor and Tyler Cartwright of Keto Games. Those guys just do amazing work and they're, they're very clinically oriented. Like they just move a lot of people through this process. And when they looked at what I was doing, they said, man, you need a lot more sodium. You need more electrolytes, but mm. more sodium in particular. And so like what anybody does when their coach tells them to do something, I ignored them <laughs> because that's what everybody does, you know, and it took a good year of them saying, you need more salt, you need more sodium, you need more sodium. And finally, one day I really weighed and measured not just my food, but the soap, my electrolyte intake. And I found that I, like they were recommending a minimum of five grams of sodium a day. 
I was barely getting two grams of sodium a day. Mm. So I bumped my sodium intake up to six grams a day and it was literally a light switch was flipped, which I, I, the, the analogy is sound because our sodium potassium pumps are what drive our nerve impulses and muscular impulses. And, and uh, if you want to have somebody die rapidly, like just, just disorder their electrolyte balance, you know, or yeah. the pH is maybe the only thing that will do you in faster than that. So sodium is a huge deal and we ended up developing a product called Element, L-M-N-T, and uh, drinkelement.com is, is where we hawk that stuff and it's gone really well. Like it, it, it plugs the gap of a ketogenic diet, it provides a gram of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium and it, it really fills in the gaps on a ketogenic diet pretty nicely. Um, even within uh, ACSM guidelines, American Council of Sports Medicine guidelines, for athletic populations that are either highly active or in hot or humid environments, they recommend seven to 10 grams of wow. sodium a day. Well, and so I, can, it, I can imagine how big a deal this is for the CrossFitters. Yeah, Especially, yeah. I mean, the, the number of CrossFitters now who are paleo and some keto while training this is a huge deal. I've had this issue myself. I, I tend to sweat a lot when I was doing mm -hmm. triathlons. It was hard for me to get enough sodium, uh, you know, because in my, my hands are always like I'm pruning. I'm like, I'm not swimming. Like, why, yep. why, yep. why is which, that? Which is a sign of excess potassium and inadequate yep. sodium. Yeah. Yeah. So we wow. get very focused on, you know, like when people start cramping and stuff, uh, they focus on potassium, eat a, eat a banana, eat a avocado, but it's actually the sodium. That's the problem. Like it, it, it's kind of a morbid thing, but lethal injections are actually a highly concentrated form of potassium. Mm. And what it does is it causes the heart to cramp one, one last time. And then that's, that's it. And, and so, um, part of the, the contract relax cycle is actually the balance of sodium and potassium. And if we, if we get out of whack with the sodium in particular, the, the, the forgiveness that our physiology has is much broader with overconsumption of sodium than it is overconsumption of potassium. Overconsuming potassium will do you in much more rapidly than overconsumption of sodium. And in the last 20, 30 years, you know, what, what's the, the one recommendation that seemingly everybody agrees on? Drink more water. Okay, that sounds good, but if you're already kind of electrolyte deficient and you're just pounding more water, you're actually worsening your, your, your uh, uh, hydration state, ironically. If you look in Guyton's physiology, which Guyton is a super popular first-year medical school physiology textbook, there's probably one right there, Guyton's textbook of medical physiology. There we go. So when you look up hydration, what gets missed is there's water and electrolytes. But somewhere along the way within dietetics and medicine at large, we forgot the electrolytes and only focused on the water. And, you know, every year, every uh, uh, triathlon, marathon, uh, boot camp, people get sick and or die from hyperhydration, from overconsuming water without adequate electrolytes to kind of support that. And if you look in the medical literature, there's virtually, it, it is virtually impossible to find somebody that willingly dies of dehydration. Like it does not happen, but people overhydrate or overconsume water 
very frequently. And so, and this is stuff that sounds even crazier than suggesting that maybe saturated fat won't kill you, you know, like the sodium somehow got got even more demonized than uh, saturated fat and cholesterol did. And, And there's maybe good reason for it because processed foods, such a central feature of the processing is additional sodium. And it, but but you really have to decouple the sodium content from everything else that's that's in that to really get a, a full accounting. Well, I mean, it's such a good point too, and this is where I think it's so important that people understand that again, everybody is a unique individual, and you know what what's happened is is we've taken somebody who is a couch potato with high blood pressure and said, don't consume sodium, but nobody you know <laughs> or consume less sodium, and, and and it's been a blanket statement for professional athletes, CrossFitters, triathletes, and these people that actually need more. And right. so anyways, it's such a good point. And so again, one of the takeaways for everybody is hydration is not just H2O, it's H2O plus electrolytes. And yes. it's, 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 it's an important thing to remember. It, and possibly a vigorous leaning towards sodium relative to the other stuff too, which again yeah. is, is hard for folks to hear initially. Yeah. That's great. Hey guys, it's Dr. Axe here to talk with you about your nutrition. Did you know today's food contains only a fraction of the nutritional value it once had? That's why Ancient Nutrition, the supplement brand I started with Jordan Rubin, offers nutritional products designed to make history's healthiest whole food nutrients convenient for everyday life. It's Ancient Nutrition for the modern world. Check us out at ancientnutrition.com to learn more. All right. So one of the other things that uh, I wanted to ask you about, uh, I'd love to hear more about this. And, and I, I've seen you sort of mention this um, neuroregulation of appetite. Um, yeah. can, can, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, what's our a, a big goal in the modern world or, or maybe a different way to look at this is how many people are successful when they do dietary change? hardly any of them. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, like being honest, it's, it, it's, it's like trying to find, you know, unicorns or leprechauns. Like it, it just, it doesn't happen very often, unfortunately. And the, w- w- what's, and I know I'm kind of spazzing out here. I'm thinking like 50 different things, but there, there's a group of people that are all kind of characterize in the evidence-based nutrition scene that say it's just calories in just calories out you just need to weigh and measure your food and, and everything's going to be okay. And they will cite things like metabolic ward studies where they basically lock people in the equivalent of like prison and they weigh and measure all their food. They weigh and measure their poo and their pee and what they breathe. And, and under those circumstances, calories in, calories out works. Like it, it kind of is, is verified. But virtually nobody lives that way. We live in this environment where if, if you go – as a broke college student, when I went into a 7-Eleven, there were more food options available to me than any Pharaoh of Egypt, King of England, up until like 20 years ago, you know? And this variety of food that's available has been engineered to be what we would call hyper palatable, to be able to eat more than what would be normal. And uh, I... Uh, I have a, a link somewhere on my website. I'll, I'll forward it to you. It's pretty interesting. There's a guy, Adam Rickman. He had a show, Man Versus Food, and he would do these eating challenges. And one of his challenges was to eat the uh, the kitchen sink ice cream sundae. 
and literally they brought out like an eight pound ice cream sundae and it was in a kitchen sink and the guy started eating it and he got maybe a third of the way in and you'd see him just kind of visibly turn green and each bite he took, he started almost gagging. And what we have woven into us is, is a, a, a tendency for us to avoid over-consuming any, any one of things. So it, 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 they call it a, a sensory-specific satiety. So even though a hot fudge sundae tastes amazing, a lot of hot fudge sundae at some point is going to taste terrible. And, and what's interesting is within these food competition circles, they have food pairings that allow you to eat more food overall. So this guy... His goal was to finish this ice cream sundae within a certain time allotment. He was bogging down. And what he did to, to win this thing was he ordered a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries. So the French fries are that salt, the heat, the umami, which mm. is as diametrically different than the cold, sweet, you know, mouthfeel of the ice cream. And it was an enormous pile of French fries. I mean, it was probably 2,000 calories of French fries. But he succeeded in winning this thing, which I don't know what he won, if it was like diabetic of the year or what. But he, <laughs> he ate the ice yes. cream sundae only because he had the French fries. He would eat a French fry, do a bite of sundae. Eat a French fry, eat a bite of sundae. And what that does is it bypasses the neuroregulation of appetite, the brain's ability to sense, have we eaten enough of any given item? And because they were able to juxtapose these flavors in such a dramatic way, then he was, he was able to overwrite basically the programming in his brain that would normally say, not only is that it, but we'll actually make you vomit, you know, if, if you continue to eat more. And this is our modern food environment. You go to a restaurant, you go to a convenience store, like there, I think the Average supermarket has 55,000 food-like items in it, and there's eight to 12,000 new food-type items that are developed every year. And again, these, these folks are actually very savvy with like evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, the neuroregulation of appetite, and they use this material to better engineer their foods, whereas in, in kind of the mainstream medical circles trying to talk about the neuroregulation of appetite. People look at you like you have three heads. Like what, what on earth are you talking about? Just eat less. You're just lazy. You need better self-control. But if, if that narrative isn't true, if it's not about self-control, if it's not about being lazy, if it's a basic biological feature that humans are designed to eat as much as they possibly can because we came from a resource-scarce environment and now we're in this resource-rich environment with an infinite variety of flavors, then we need a really different strategy to deal with that than just saying, hey, eat less, move more. And, and this is where what, the research that I really like, uh, there was a diet fit study where they looked at uh, folks that were instructed how to eat a whole food, low-fat diet, a whole food, low-carb diet, both groups did about as well. Both of them lost weight. Both of them improved. They, they, they had high protein and, and equal protein in both groups. Both groups in aggregate did well. Within both of those groups, some people did very poorly, which speaks to the individualization. Some people do better on high carb. Some people do better on low carb. But the thing that will guarantee failure is being in this middle ground where we're trying to have kind of high carb and kind of high fat all at the same time. 
And so from my perspective, people kind of need to pick one path or the other, either go low carb or go low fat and mainly stick in that lane for the most part. Like we, if you eat three meals a day, seven days a week, that's 21 meals, 18 to 19 of those meals should be in the lane you picked. And two of them are kind of, kind of optional beyond that. And I Mm. think if you do much more deviation than that, you're really asking for a lot of problems. Hmm. It's so interesting, you know, just the way that our, uh, you know, our diet is set up today is, is so much, it's, you know, it's a lot of sweet foods, uh, typically. And, you know, most people eat today to sort of satisfy their sweet tooth. But one of the things I know you and I share this common passion, it made me think about this because you, you were talking about eating the French fries, eating the ice cream, but this is like, this is kind of like a common meal today. When people are eating meals, it's like, Meat, starch, something sweet. I mean, that, that's someone's average dinner. I, I'm just thinking back. I was reading something recently they were talking about. It's uh, uh, the energetics of food. And they were talking mm-hmm. about an Ayurvedic medicine, Asian medicine, not just food as medicine. They, they looked at the entire meal and how to make it a medicine. And I thought this was cool. Like if you look at something like sushi, you know, sushi is cooling foods for swarming foods. It's like, why when you eat sushi, is there seaweed and raw fish, which is super cooling? But then why? But then you have wasabi and ginger, which are really warming because they balance each other out. Mm-hmm. If you were just having one, you'd have g- irritable bowel syndrome after a right. certain amount of time. If you had the other, you'd have chronic inflammation, high blood pressure, and so. Anyways, it's um, you know what they really thought about during these ancient times, and I know you've studied so much, you know, paleo and regenerative agriculture and these other civilizations that have lived long periods of time. They really thought about their food as how to make these meals as medicine. No one does that today. You know, you look at Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, the meals were kind of created by a physician. Right. You know, that, that, you know now it's food companies and others who are dictating so much of it. But that was another topic I did want to t- t- touch on is I know that you really have done some good research on regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately today, We've got companies like Monsanto, big agricultural companies who are totally destroying, you know, the carbon levels and all the things happening in our soil. And I'm really close to this myself and my business partner, Jordan Rubin. We own 5,000 acres in Missouri and 1,000 acres in Tennessee where we do uh, permaculture and silvopasture Mm -hmm. and we have a a hemp farm uh, in Tennessee as well. So we are really in tune with regenerative agriculture, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and take on really the power of regenerative agriculture and how it applies to everybody listening today. Yeah. You know, it, there, there are examples of different um, food production systems that are several thousand years old places in Central America, South America, um, Scottish Highlands. Uh, there are places where we've seen the uh, agricultural approaches destroy the area. Like the, the fertile crescent used to be, fertile and now it's a desert. And yep. so there, there was some mismanagement there. And unfortunately, there's probably more examples of poor management than good, but there are some examples of, of well-managed areas that the food systems are largely the same now as what they were three, four, 5,000 years ago. Like the, you know, they're, they're qualitatively the same. And what's interesting is they really have an eye towards what are the needs and the opportunities of that specific landscape. You know, the needs of someone in central Mongolia are going to be totally different than like Central America, you know, and, and uh, what, we've, what we've motored towards with the industrialization of our food system is, again, like a one size fits all for everybody. 
And the, 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 Diana Rogers and I are writing a book and doing a movie called Sacred Cow, which really digs into the health, environmental, and ethical considerations for better meat. And uh, it's a very unpopular topic right now because the things that you bring up, like uh, the notion that grazing animals might actually be beneficial for climate change is a really hot topic. Like you now can't even have a conversation suggesting that will oftentimes get one labeled as a climate change denier. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I, I get greenhouse effect, like gases, trap energy, raises temperature. No debate on that. Let's talk about how, uh, you know, different strategies of dealing with that. And so it's a really controversial topic, but this basic idea of regenerative agriculture is using plants, animals, and the natural environment in a way that it could go on in perpetuity, like until the sun runs out of hydrogen diffuse, like this process could continue going on. Whereas our current row crop food system is entirely dependent on synthetic fertilizers, uh, a host of pets, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and we know that these things are causing ever larger problems, like uh, uh, huge dead zones in the, the ocean, you know, uh, estuary areas where, where major waterways empty into oceans yeah. because of the nitrogenous waste. And so not only is it damaging the soil, not only is it not sequestering carbon and reducing the heat footprint, which well-managed regenerative agriculture could do all of that stuff. It's also damaging the oceans themselves. So, you, you know, I'd love to hear. So I, so my wife and I always, we have a, uh, we have a place we vacation on in the panhandle of Florida. It's, uh, it's called Santa Rosa beach or 30 a mm -hmm. seaside watercolor. So we, it's a place we go there and I'd plug all the time. Last year they had red tide so bad that literally, I mean, thousands upon thousands of fish were dead and I started reading up on this online. And of course, now Google has buried it so far, it's hard to find. But, you know, they were talking about all of these, uh, you know, all of these chemicals running off, especially in the Everglades where they grow a lot of sugar cane, mm -hmm. that that's going out in the ocean. The ocean's natural way of dealing with it is with algae, you know, right. it's, and so, but now this is moving up into Sarasota, Tampa, up, you know, up through the Gulf Coast of Florida. And literally people, you can't go outside, you, you kind of choke, you, it's hard to breathe. Like people mm -hmm. are thinking about moving out. So anyways, I just wanted to say this hits really close to home to a lot of people. Like I've even seen that in us taking vacations. Right, right. Yeah. And you know, the, the crazy thing is the, um, the kind of dominant narrative right now is, is just supporting a couple of companies that basically own the intellectual rights on virtually all the food that's being produced. Whereas the, the counterpoint to this is a, a zillion small decentralized family-owned farms that, that deal with the challenges and the opportunities in a specific local environment. Like we, we just recorded our po podcast earlier and one of the news topics that I pulled up was a, a Mother Jones piece. I'll actually snag it here real quick. But it was talking about these, these uh, two brothers that own a, a, a pig farming operation in New Mexico, and all of the feed that they use for the pigs comes from local restaurants, supermarkets, uh, it, it basically food that's a little bit outside expiration date. But, but uh, just these two brothers that have a 40-acre pig farm, they reduce the uh, landfill inputs by 80,000 pounds a week 
just just with the activity that they do. And, and there's estimates that about 50% of the food that's produced in westernized countries ends up getting landfilled. And so this is another piece of this whole you know, kind of biodynamic story. If you go almost anywhere else in the world, uh, food waste and other types of waste get put back into animals like chickens and pigs and ducks and even certain types of fish to upcycle the nutrients. And then we end up not in the scenario of red tide because all this nutrient effluent ends up out in the ocean. So the, the, the bugger with it is that no one person can own all the IP on it. Um, there's lots of different solutions. It becomes very regional. We have lots of uh, laws ranging from homeowners associations to zoning that make things like this really difficult to enact. But yeah. if folks are concerned about climate change and food quality, these are the places that we, we actually have an amazing amount of opportunity to change uh, kind of legal status at the local level to make it more amenable for people to have small decentralized farms and to do things like like pulling food out of uh, uh, you know uh, overripe fruit and, and different foods out of supermarkets and make that actually legal to happen. It's it's crazy how difficult it is to create healthy change sometimes. Um, it's just it's insane. So switching gears here, I would love to talk a little bit about just for our viewers here. So if we have, what, what do you think are your biggest, so we've talked a little about paleo, we've talked about keto, but generally speaking, what are some of the biggest game changers that you think that the average person needs to start being aware of for their own health? I mean, is there oh, something man. dietarily, is there a mindset, is it stress, is there sleep? Like, I'd love to hear from you what you think. What, what are three needle movers if someone says, I want to feel really different 30 days from now, what are some things they can do? So I, I think the biggest one that is is most overlooked, although it's changing, is probably sleep. Um, we have this kind of Puritan work ethic. Sleep is for the weak. I'll sleep when I'm dead. And it, it's just crystal clear that um, uh, we are sleeping less than we have historically, even, even like 20 years ago. And the likely uh, health consequences are pretty pretty dramatic. To say nothing of of just like huge numbers of accidents and injuries that occur because people are are driving and operating machinery and doing things when they're they're as impaired as as, as if they had been drinking. So that that sleep piece is enormous, and it should be as easy as selling sex, but it's a hard sell to get people to turn off their their social media, to put down their their devices. To put on some blue blockers in the evening, dim the lights in their house, and go go to bed a little bit earlier and practice a little bit of sleep hygiene. But where and when I've been able to get people to do that, it's amazing. the The flip side of that is folks who must live in a uh, disordered circadian rhythm: police, military, fire, new parents. They experience the downside of disordered sleep. It, it's virtually impossible to lose body fat. No matter what, how tight you are on your diet, what exercise you do, you're not at particularly great body composition typically. So it's a really good illustration of how challenging all that stuff is. And, uh, you know, I guess on the food side, uh, encouraging people to just tinker a little bit with, do you do better low carb? Do you do better high carb? Do a little bit of, of testing with that. And even within that story, some people will find that they don't do well with rice, but they do great with potatoes. So it's not necessarily... 
a, a deal that they are better off low carb, but they may be better with yams and sweet potatoes and white potatoes than they are with quinoa, corn, and rice. And so doing a little bit of experimentation, uh, I, I have a thing if folks do a little searching Rob Wolf uh, seven-day carb test, they can get a free download on like how to test their blood sugar and figure out what foods that they do well with. And so sleep, uh, carb testing, I guess just general, like, like being out in the day as much as possible, that circadian yeah. biology, which wraps back around with the, the sleep. But um, we tend to be indoors far too much for what's healthy for us. Um, we, we tend to not get the intense light during the day, but then we have too much light exposure in the evening and it tends to disorder our circadian biology. And it, it, that whole topic is fascinating. Like they're finding that a, a number of drugs like chemotherapy may be far more effective if it's done in the morning versus the evening. And that may be due to a circadian biology mm. consideration. So that circadian clock story is just going to be enormous as we go forward. And there's so much to learn about that. It's so interesting too. Again, my mind just goes to Chinese medicine. If you've seen the body clock and what mm -hmm. organs are really most, uh, the most blood flow is getting to at what times of the day. It's just so fascinating. Yeah. And it, you know, we're, it's interesting, the reductionist approach of, Western medicine has been really amazing in some regards, but it's so parts and pieces that we're now at a spot where the parts and pieces approach isn't going to deal with cancer or diabetes or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. I, I think two of the, the largest drug companies in the world just abandoned their Alzheimer's drug research because it's a metabolically driven process and you are not, you're just not, and I'm, I'm like the most optimistic guy in the world, but you're not going to address a process that is that complex with a single magic bullet. It's just not going to happen. And even these folks kind of recognize that we need a multifactorial approach that addresses sleep and food and circadian biology and, and uh, uh, community and, and support. And, and those things are non-negotiable features. If, if you're missing one of those, we have to figure out a way of, of propping that up. If we're going to, kick the can on these disease processes or maybe even reverse them. Yeah. It's so good. Well, I want to say, Rob, thanks so much for coming on the show. I do want to give a few shout outs to things you got going on. Number one, hey, if you want to listen to a great podcast, make sure to check out Rob's podcast. It's the Healthy Rebellion Radio. You can find it there on iTunes. Also, Dr. Uh, Rob has written some awesome books. You can find them in bookstores nationwide, amazon.com. But again, especially Telling you his podcast is awesome. It's the Healthy Rebellion, or it's Healthy Rebellion Radio. Make sure to check it out. I want to say, Rob, thanks so much for what you do for again bringing research to the forefront, being a pioneer uh, in keto and in paleo, and uh, again, just respect your work. So, thanks so much. Huge honor, Doc. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Thanks everybody for listening. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Make sure to go to my recent Instagram post and let me know what your favorite part of the show was. Also, don't forget to follow me at Dr. Josh Axe there on Insta, where I cover the latest health trends, natural medicine, and so much more. Also, if you're loving this podcast, do me a big favor, head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Thanks so much for being on mission with me. See you next week.
This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. In some cases, individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein.